a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, here we go, and welcome to the show. You ready for a little breath of sanity in a sea of, uh, what, irrationality? I Look, I don't know if I'm going to be the voice of reason today or not. I do have some good news to share. I have a fair amount of not-so-good news, but hopefully by the end of today's program, you will have a better and more clear view of what's going on around us as well as a better sense of what you and I could be doing within our you know, own respective spheres of influence to make things better. We're not completely helpless, right? <clears throat> this is not about you know, the, the, the victims meeting. I believe that club is uh, meeting down the street. There's a big group of them, too. They've got spray paint. They've got bats. Yeah, I don't know what's up with that. So while we've been busy fighting about masks and such, has anybody been paying attention to what uh, Congress is up to. Now, I'm asking this in all sincerity because if you're not paying close attention, uh, there's a surprise or yet another surprise that is looming on the horizon, and that is another round of bipartisan spending insanity. And people may ask, okay, why why does this even matter, right? Congress is going to do what it's going to do. They're always spending money. Well, it has great impact on, uh, first of all, you know, our taxes. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are a lot of uh, cities and municipalities that have stepped up and said, you know, we're going to have to raise taxes to pay for, you know, damage done by looters and rioters and so forth, as well as trying to pick up the pieces from all of the economic damage from shutting down businesses, you know, those deemed non-essential and so forth. But what about Congress? They at least have some discretion, right? And when it comes to the uh, stimulus funds, and yes, there is talk of another round of stimulus funds on the horizon. Uh, what exactly does that do to us or for us? Veronique de Rugi, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has an article about uh, bracing ourselves for the next round of bipartisan spending insanity. Now, there are a lot of numbers involved here, but it's worth knowing these because you you need to understand what is being done, the debt that is being incurred here. It's going to be placed on the backs of generations that haven't even been born. And if that doesn't sound like such a big deal, because it's like, well, you know, that's their problem and not ours. The same thing was done to many of us. And it seems like a tremendously immoral thing to, uh, to not only tolerate, but maybe even advocate for. Why would you want to saddle someone with a debt that they did not benefit from, at least directly, and of course had absolutely no say in whether or not to take on that debt in the first place? It just strikes me that 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 would be kind of a moral consideration. Anyway, Veronique de Rugi says that after fiscal year 2020 deficit spending went from a trillion dollars to 3.7 trillion in the span of just a few weeks. Some Republicans have felt the need to signal their belief that maybe such a gargantuan increase in national indebtedness couldn't go on like that much longer. She says something needed to change, but that's all we got. Meaningless virtue signaling. 
Washington is the land of the bipartisan big spenders. Now, just as a reminder, she points out before this epidemic, rather this pandemic, and before the destructive reaction by government officials around the country, we experienced 10 straight years of economic growth, including in wage rates. Now, that should have been the time not only to eliminate or reduce budget deficits, but also to implement reforms aimed at ensuring fiscal prudence over the long run. However, Republicans and Democrats only further opened the government spending faucet. Massive amounts of additional debt, a, quote, gift to our grandchildren, were accumulated. And when spending caps got in the way of this spending spree, what did Congress do? Well, they simply got rid of the caps. Now, Veronique DeRugi says that uh, Democrats are a lost cause, obviously, because there's no spending they don't like. But at least they're honest about it. Of course, they describe their spending as a way to grow the economy and create jobs. But at least they tell you what they want is more spending and more debt. Republicans, however, pretend that, well, they're, they're the party of small government. Yet nothing could be further from the truth. She says, in fact, people should laugh hysterically if they ever tell you. They're concerned about the debt and future generations because they are similar to the Democrats. In practice, she says, Republican administrations and Republicans in Congress will give the Democrats all the spending on education and all the other junk that the Democrats favor as long as the Democrats agree to spend boatloads on the likes of the military, government spying, and immigration crackdowns. Both parties <clears throat> excuse me, love farm subsidies and other corporate welfare programs like the Export-Import Bank. Both parties eagerly spend big on infrastructure. Neither party wants to privatize airports, the U.S. Postal Service, or Amtrak, as they should be doing. And she says, let's not forget that both parties gave us the CARES Act and the two rounds of COVID-19, quote, relief bills before it. So the bottom line is that nearly everyone in Congress is a big spender. And this reality isn't going to change anytime soon. Take, for instance, the recent news that Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has already announced that spending an additional $1 trillion on some extra stimulus is not going to cut it. In response to the Trump administration's calls to limit the next coronavirus relief package to just a trillion, she said at a news conference, oh, it can only be a trillion dollars? No, we need a trillion dollars for state and local. We need another trillion dollars for unemployment insurance and direct payments. Now to this, Veronique DeRugi says, I like the we need. As we know about what we need, the speaker's starting point would be the Democrats' proposal to spend $3 trillion on top of what Congress has already agreed to in the past few weeks to spend. Never mind that not all of the previous $2.2 trillion spending has yet to be dispersed entirely. In that sense, the administration's starting point offer of a trillion dollars seems reasonable, except that it's not. <clears throat> Case in point, Democrats want a second round of expansion of unemployment benefits all the way to March 2021, including a $600 weekly bonus in addition to regular state benefits which has meant that two-thirds of the recipients are actually making more income than when they were working. Now, the Republicans protested, saying this was irresponsible, as this much relief creates disincentives to work, which isn't good when so many businesses are trying to survive. So what do the White House officials now offer? 
they want an extension of unemployment benefits large enough so that people make only 100% of their previous wages while on leave. And she says, for evidence, I give you the Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, quoted in an article at The Hill. In a Thursday interview with CNBC, Mnuchin said that any extension of enhanced unemployment insurance would cap benefits at no more than 100% of what the recipient made before becoming unemployed. And to this, Veronique Derugi says, what a joke. How does paying payer, paying workers rather who stay at home exactly what they made on the job incentivize them to return to work? She says, I don't know, but I bet it involves a plan to compensate for the disincentive to work the administration plans to expand with money on some reemployment bonus or some bad ideas like that. And of course, that's just the beginning. After all... Mnuchin and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had a very good phone conversation about a second round of economic benefit payments to households, an extension of enhanced unemployment benefits, and an expansion of the terrible Paycheck Protection Program forgivable loans to small businesses with the promise that it would be more targeted this time around. So this spending will be on top of the unemployment benefit expansion. Are you keeping up with all this? I've got it right here in front of me in black and white, and it's still making my head spin. Veronique de Rugi says, it is maddening. With big spenders like the Republicans, you don't really need the Democrats. In fact, she says, after the last four months, I'm left wondering if we would have been better off spending-wise if the positions had been reversed and the Democrats were in charge of the Senate and the White House. In that case, the Republicans would have had something that more closely resembled a backbone, something that would have prompted them in greater resistance to much of this spending. Or would have prompted in them greater resistance, rather. Sadly, she says, we live in this world. And in this world, members of Congress and the administration don't care about the size of government any more than they care about most of our other freedoms. So what can you and I do? That's a good question. And I don't know that I have a solid answer for you other than eliminate debt. If you have any debt in your life, try to get as financially self-sufficient as you can and resist the urge to go deeper into debt. That can be a tall order because I understand a lot of people are kind of up against the wall right now trying to make ends meet. What a horrible situation. And I think the worst part is everything Congress is doing appears to be just making it that much worse. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. As always, I will have a lot of great links in the show notes, and I would encourage you, go to lovingliberty.net. You can access uh, this hour of the show. This would be uh, uh, Brian Hyde, Hour 1, on this, the uh, 13th of July. And uh, check out the different uh, links to the essays and articles that I reference. There's a wealth of information there. I I spend a fair amount of time each day trying to gather all of the uh, different articles and the different information for you. And I just want it there. So if it's something that hits the right nerve or something you want to research a little bit further, you have the option of doing so. Let's talk about something that uh, is starting to become the norm 
I've seen this at the gas station. I've seen it at the grocery store. I've experienced it a little bit at the drive-thru at Taco Bell, of all places. Have you noticed all the little signs going up lately saying, hey, please use exact change or be willing to round up for your purchase? And there are a couple different thoughts here. Number one, we're being told there is a coin shortage. And this is part of it. Now, uh, being slightly conspiratorial, I'm looking a little bit deeper as well, though, and saying, could this be the early stages of implementing a cashless society? We'll talk more about that in the days ahead. I've had plenty to say on the dangers of a cashless society. Uh, Whatever you may think of Dave Ramsey, he has a very solid take on what that opens us up to, mainly in terms of loss of privacy. But I want to talk about the coin shortage for the time being, because this is something that has a lot of people, myself included, asking, okay, where have the coins gone? I mean, every so often I find myself, you know, accumulating coins and I realize, okay, my pants are are really, you know, starting to drag, you know, in my right pocket where I, I keep my points, coins and I have to, you know, cash them in or spend them, drop them in a vending machine, whatever it may be. But we are starting to see officially very few coins. And you have to wonder, how can this be? William J. Luther, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a wonderful article. He says, uh, he starts with a quote from economist Milton Friedman. If you put the government in charge of the, the federal government in charge of the Sahara Desert, in five years, there'd be a shortage of sand. And to this, uh, William J. Luther says the U.S. Mint, to its credit, has had a much longer run. He says the Federal Reserve, which purchases coins from the Mint and distributes them to depository institutions, announced it would begin rationing coins based on historical order volume by coin denomination last month as its coin inventory had been reduced to below normal levels. Now, the Fed also called on the Mint to increase the supply, but until the shortage is resolved, however, retailers unable to acquire enough coins from banks are left requesting customers pay with a card or use exact change. No doubt many find the idea of a coin shortage perplexing because coins aren't consumed. They get passed along from one person to another. In the U.S., the average coin circulates for around 30 years. So how then can there suddenly be a shortage of coins? Where have they all gone? Well, okay, let's explore this. Each year, he says, some coins are lost discarded or worn beyond use they get thrown in a well with a wish or they get dropped down a drain by mistake and to offset the outflow and keep up with the secular growth in demand the mint has to produce new coins well it issued nearly 12 billion circulating coins in 2019 so far the mint has not matched its 2019 pace The global pandemic slowed production at the Denver and Philadelphia branches in March and April. By the beginning of May, the cumulative mintage, that is the total number of circulating coins produced for the year, was just 4.02 billion, compared with 5.07 billion over that same period in 2019. Both facilities have been operating at full capacity since June 15th. So since then, the gap has fallen to less than 0.06 billion. But he says the temporary shortfall in production is only a small part of the problem. A much bigger issue has been the limited extent to which coins have been circulating. Coins have a much higher weight-to-value ratio than cash, 
which makes them relatively cumbersome to use. Cash goes into wallets ready to make the next transaction. Coins go into piggy banks, either to be deposited or exchanged for cash just occasionally. But usually the vast stockpile of coins held by the public is of little consequence because it represents a roughly steady share of the total coin supply. Sure, paper currency circulates more quickly, but people's depositing or exchanging coins when their piggy banks get full also results in a relatively steady flow of coins back into the banking system. But not much has been as usual these last few months. The global pandemic and corresponding shutdowns have led to a huge slowdown in economic activity. Consequently, the usual flow of coins from our piggy banks into the banking system has dried up. Of course, the flow from the banking system to our piggy banks has also dried up as retailers didn't need to request coins from their banks to make change for non-existent customers. But as the economy reopened, stores quickly exhausted their existing coin inventories, and then they turned to the banks for more. So the flow of coins out of the banking system picked up as coins started piling up in our piggy banks once more. But the flow of coins back into the banking system from our piggy banks had not yet restarted. Lacking the usual coin deposits from the public, the banks in turn requested coins from the Fed, which, it, which requested them from the Mint. And with the Mint unable to fill the gap with new coins, and indeed falling short of its usual production levels, a shortage resulted. Now here the author says it's tempting to give the Mint a pass. Few among us expected a pandemic. And all things considered, it's probably unreasonable to expect the Mint, with its own staff shortages to contend with, to have hit 2019 production levels, let alone accommodate a huge, albeit temporary, surge in coin demand. But policy decisions have made the shortage much worse than necessary. For starters, consider the decision to produce such low-valued coins. The penny became the lowest U.S. denomination coin in 1857 when the half-cent coin was discontinued. Some states and local governments issued smaller denomination mill coins worth a tenth of a penny, but they were uncommon and primarily used to pay taxes. In 1857, a penny purchased what roughly 30 cents will buy today. And the rare mill coin, when it was to be found, was worth nearly three times what a penny is worth today. We didn't need such a low-valued coin then, but we definitely do not need it now. Pennies have an extremely high weight-to-value ratio. So they tend to pile up longer than other coins. One might occasionally spend six quarters for a Coke, but few will take the trouble to count out 150 pennies. So pennies are rarely spent. They're accepted as change and if not left by the till, deposited or exchanged for cash. But even that's not so easy because many banks limit coin deposits on the, to their customers. He says, for instance, the Chase branch in my neighborhood does not accept coins at all. To deposit coins, I have to go to another branch with a coin counting machine. That's inconvenient. Coinstar is a bit better, but who wants to lug all those coins to the store? Next time, I tell myself, and eventually I do cash them in. Now, rounding to the nearest nickel or dime seems more sensible, though. He says, sometimes I would pay a bit more, sometimes a bit less, but I wouldn't have to fuss with all those pennies, and neither would banks or retailers. So, given its limited usefulness, the penny is simply too costly in normal times. The mint lost 0.99 cents on each penny it sold in 2019, and yet it produced more pennies than any other coin in circulation. Nearly 60% of all circulating coins minted in 2019 were pennies. In total, the mint lost $69.7 million 
making pennies. That's just sad. With reduced capacity, producing pennies makes even less sense. To the extent possible, the Mint should divert resources from producing pennies to more useful quarters and dimes. It doesn't appear to have done so. In fact, he says in March, April, and May, the Mint produced nearly 1.4 billion pennies, roughly 54% of all circulating coins minted. Eliminating wasteful penny production would be an improvement over the status quo. But he says penny production is merely a symptom of a much deeper problem, and that is the lack of competition in coinage. Okay, I'm going to pause here. We'll come back to this in a few moments. William J. Luther is the author of Where Have All the Coins Gone? It's a question that if you haven't asked yourself yet, you'll be asking it soon as more and more of these signs pop up at your favorite retail establishments. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back. I'm sharing an article from William J. Luther from the American Institute for Economic Research. Where have all the coins gone? If you have been puzzled, as you've seen the signs start to pop up around your local convenience store or other retail establishment saying, hey, please have exact change or purchase by card wherever possible, you've probably wondered, why is it that they're having such a difficulty, uh, you know, in, in coming up with the coins? Well, he's offered a pretty good explanation so far, and you can always uh, check this out. I'll have the link in the show notes at lovingliberty.net. To understand what's going on here, though, you have to understand the lack of competition in coinage. And that starts with understanding that the mint, the U.S. mint, is a government monopoly. Now, that wasn't always the case. In his work on the history of coinage, Edgar Holmes Adams describes the establishment of Moffat & Company, a private mint in San Francisco, during the California Gold Rush. At least 14 other private mints operated in California between 1849 and and 1855, with many more striking coins east of the Appalachian Mountains. So how effective were these private mints? Well, in 1850, the Treasury hired Moffat to mint official American government-stamped coins. Then, when the government finally opened the San Francisco Mint in 1854, it operated with equipment previously employed by Moffat. Private mints, in other words, were more than capable of minting coins, and they would have continued minting coins had an act of Congress on June 8, 1864, not made it illegal. See, private mints have been especially useful during coin shortages. George Selgin recounts the British coin shortage of more than 200 years ago. Quote, fed up with the government's inaction, British firms started minting their own coins. Within a decade, a score of private mints struck more coins than the Royal Mint had issued in half a century and better ones. Heavier, more beautiful, and a lot harder to fake. Yet they were also less expensive since private coiners sold their products at cost plus a modest markup, like other competitive firms, instead of charging the coin's face value as governments like to do. End quote. Well, as in San Francisco, William Luther reports, roughly 40 years later, private mints led the way while government mints lagged behind. If they operated today, private mints would not produce any old coin, of course. Instead, they would only produce what banks, presumably their main clients, and banks' customers wanted. So it's hard to imagine that they would produce the penny. They probably would not produce a dollar coin 
more than a billion of which currently sit unwanted in government vaults, and if they did, they would likely make it more distinguishable from a quarter. They might not produce the nickel, which also loses money, either. So what? The case for producing these costly, cumbersome-to-use coins is weak. They get minted today because clever lobbyists are good at harnessing nostalgia and advancing junk arguments about rounding. A private coin industry would not be able to waste taxpayer funds for the sake of subsidizing metal miners or pleasing their representatives in Congress. Instead, he says, private mints would produce the kind of coins people actually want to use. And if history is any guide, they would do so more efficiently than the mint. The costs of a coin shortage are probably lower today than in the past, but he says we're fortunate to have many alternative payment options. Nonetheless, we should acknowledge the weaknesses of our current system and make improvements if possible. At a minimum, that means scrapping the penny. More fundamental reforms, like permitting competition and coinage, would be better still. Again, this is from William J. Luther, the director of the, director of the American Institute for Economic Research's Sound Money Project. Fun stuff. Let's shift gears here for a second. I want to pose a question to you. How bad would things have to get before you would be willing to vote with your feet and leave your current state of residence? You know, I think a lot of people have been looking this over, especially here within the last few months, and have tried to come to to some answer for themselves. And, And the answer for a lot of them is, you know, right now, it would have to get as bad as it is right this second. Case in point, if you have tried to access a moving van, you have probably found that they are in fairly short supply. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine who works in Las Vegas on occasion was uh, looking to move some stuff. He had recently relocated from Las Vegas, and he was trying to find a moving van. The closest van that he could rent was either in St. George, Utah, which is a full two hours away from Vegas, or in Laughlin, Nevada, which I don't know how far Laughlin is. What's it, about an hour outside of Vegas? At any rate, you get the picture. Where are all those moving vans? Well, the answer is they're being used. And I saw this article earlier today that I thought was interesting. This is on LewRockwell.com. Michael Shedlock has a, a brief little article. It's very short. It takes three weeks to escape Illinois. Why three weeks? He says that's how long it takes to reserve a one-way U-Haul outbound. Everyone is leaving. No one is coming, a U-Haul agent told him just a few weeks ago. Curious, isn't it? Illinoisans are leaving their state in record numbers, and, according to Michael Shedlock, so, so is he. He says back on January 2nd of this year, he announced Illinoisans leave state in record numbers, but he says, I'm pleased to report, as we loaded our U-Haul, our U-Haul yesterday, and he says, now I'm on the road driving to our new home in Utah. Well, welcome, Michael. Glad to have you here. He says, right now we're just a few hours into the trip, but we've crossed the state line, and we're now in Iowa. On February 12th, Wirepoints noted if the wealthy flee, ordinary Illinoisans will be left holding the progressive tax bag. And his point here is, uh, you know, Michael Shedlock says the point is, yeah, we've had enough. He says we were paying about $15,000 a year in property taxes on a home now worth about 380000 or so. We have a beautiful one-acre lot surrounded by 30 white and or burr oak trees, 100 to 200 years old. But... Property values are sinking. So he says, we will sell the house for a lot less than we paid for it 20 years ago. 
property taxes are a killer and taxes in general are going to rise in Illinois. By the way, he discusses why he chose to move to Utah in a post that he did last October. Escape Illinois. Get the hell out now. We are. Again, you'll find this in the show notes. Be well worth your while to take a look at it. And uh, I don't know. I hope you're in a situation where hopefully you don't have to, uh, you know, to flee. It's tough to uproot. Moving under the best of circumstances is extremely difficult and stressful. But for a lot of people, it's becoming a reality. And I would think especially those people who are living in cities where, you know, the uh, the riots have been going on and where city leaders essentially have taken a knee. Well, you know, what can we do? Someone's upset. We just have to find We have to try to understand the rage. You know, if you're being taxed to death in one of those cities and you are, you know, left on your own. What was I seeing yesterday? Oh, yes. Uh, St. Louis. The D.A. has gone after the couple that was defending their mansion. You remember, you've seen, I'm sure you've seen the picture, the guy with the AR-15 and his wife out there with the handgun, warning a mob of protesters to leave them alone. The mob had trespassed onto their private street, their private property. They were threatening them. And, you know, well, we, we discussed this last week. The tactics of going out and waving guns around, probably not wise. I don't believe a crime was committed. I think that they... They deterred the mob as they intended to, but the DA has gone after him. A search warrant was served last Friday. Their guns have been taken. No charges filed, no arrests made. But yeah, how would you feel about paying taxes to a city that, uh, you know, the police were nowhere to be seen? And even if they were around, oftentimes they're just told, stand down. Just, you know, don't, don't interfere. You're getting a whole lot of nothing for your taxes. And there's another article by Tyler Durden. This is from ZeroHedge.com. Major tax increases are about to slam America as cities and states want you to pay for COVID fallout. Isn't that the beautiful thing about government is, you know, they can make a terrible mistake, put millions of people out of work, close the doors to thousands upon thousands of businesses. But when it comes to accountability, no politician is going to lose his or her pension. They haven't missed a paycheck. They're still considered even the the most essential of the essential. So who gets to pay for all of the fallout for their bad decisions? The taxpayer. And you don't have a choice. Just a quick excerpt here from Tyler Durden's article. He says, uh, actually, this is he's quoting Isaac Davis from Waking Times. Just prior to the global coronavirus outbreaks, serious signs of an emerging financial crisis begin to emerge. As people were beginning to realize yet another central bank engineered bust was coming down on us, we were thrown into lockdown, shuttering millions of businesses and sending millions of people to the unemployment lines. Well, now, just a few months later, we're starting to realize just how deep the economic fallout will be. And as Americans are scrambling to adjust their lifestyles to the new total world order, at the top of the food chain is government, city, state and federal. And believe it or not, the tax man is hurting, too. Tax revenues have plummeted, but there are there are bureaucrats who are looking for ways to extract that money from the people. Can they do it without causing extreme po- po- poverty, rather, and uh, triggering widespread result revolt, rather? Well, <laughs> that remains to be seen. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. You should check it out for yourself. This is the Brian Hyde Show. 
The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Moving on, let's talk about the woke revolution. Oh, come on. You can't pretend that you haven't heard of it or maybe even experienced it. It's it's been fascinating to watch this unfold and I know it's really tempting when when you see, you know, the uh, the cancel culture uh, the, the push for, well, there's this orthodoxy and everybody has to think this way. It's tempting to think of it in terms of, you know, this is just a few uh, elitists or, you know, it's just so much intellectual posturing between elitists. But as Paul Craig Roberts explains, you know, your personal speech and your personal freedom of conscience are very much on the line as well. And one of the great uh, one of the great examples of this a a classic uh, uh, object lesson is when 150 prominent intellectuals and ivy league academics of leftist leftish persuasion signed a letter in harper's protesting the breakdown in civilized debate and imposition of ideological conformity now the signatories made the obligatory bow to denouncing trump as a real threat to democracy they called for greater inclu- inclusion and greater equality across our society, but that wasn't enough to save them from denunciation for stating these truthful facts. Quote, the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we've come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counter-speech from all quarters, but it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. More troubling still. Institutional leaders in a spirit of panicked damage control are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considered reforms. Editors are fired for running controversial pieces. Books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Journalists are barred from writing on certain topics. Professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in class. A researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study, and the heads of organizations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. Whatever the arguments around each particular incident, the result has been to steadily narrow the boundaries of what can be said without the threat of reprisal. We are already paying the price in greater risk aversion among writers, artists, and journalists who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even lack sufficient zeal in in agreement. Now, Paul Craig Roberts says the signatories to this letter do not understand that time has passed them by. And this is kind of a brutal reality, but I don't disagree with his assessment. Free speech is no longer a value. Because free speech is an ally of oppression, at least in the minds of the, uh, the politically correct, because it permits charges against Western civilization and the white racist oppressors to be answered. And facts are not welcome. The purpose of the woke revolution, he says, is to overthrow a liberal society and impose conformity with wokeness in its place. Whiteness has been declared evil. There is nothing to debate. Now, he says the signatories don't understand that today there's only one side. In place of debate, there's denunciation, the purpose of which is to impose ideological conformity. 
It's pointless to search for truth when truth has been revealed. Western civilization and all its works are a white racist construct and must be destroyed. There's nothing to debate. He says to make clear that in these revolutionary times, not even prominent people of accomplishment such as Noam Chomsky are entitled to a voice different from the woke-imposed conformity, the letter was answered by a condescending statement signed by a long list of woke journalists of no distinction or achievement people no one has ever heard of. The 150 prominent defenders of free speech were simply dismissed as no longer relevant. Noam Chomsky and other prominent signatories were dismissed as irrelevant just as the prominent historians were who took exception to the New York Times 1619 Project, a packet of lies and anti-white propaganda. Those famous historians found that they weren't relevant. The New York Times has an agenda that's independent of the facts. And the message is clear. Shut up, white, wealthy people. And you also, Thomas Chatterton Williams, a black person with a white name, your voices of oppression have been canceled. Paul Craig Roberts says the oppressed and marginalized voices of woke, volu- re- woke revolutionaries rather, who have imposed tyranny in universities, the workplace, and via social media are the ones that now control explanations. No one is permitted to disagree with them. Lining up on the woke side are CNN, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Slate, and other prostitute organizations desperately trying to remain relevant. Every one of these institutions quickly took the side of the woke revolution against facts and free speech. And he has four different examples linked in this article, which, again, you can find in the show notes at LovingLiberty.net. He says the revolution is over unless the guillotine is next. Academic freedom no longer exists. Free speech no longer exists. The media is a propaganda ministry. Without free speech, there can be no answer to denunciation. White people are guilty, period. I know that's a, that's a tough, tough pill to swallow. And maybe he's stating it from the worst possible case. I don't know. I mean, there's room for disagreement here, right? At the same time, I would encourage you don't get caught up in the idea that, well, but this is just something taking place in the ivory towers of academia. This is something that affects you and me. And it's something that we had better decide how committed we are to to either claiming or or exercising or using and defending our rights. I understand the you know, the woke crowd is is very uh, they're vehement, in some cases violent. Oh, what was the video I saw over the weekend? I believe it was in Britain. And a young man is standing there holding a sign that simply says, I, I, I'll have to paraphrase it. It was something along the lines of every voice should be heard or all voices deserve, you know, to, to be heard. The idea was that free speech matters, popular, unpopular. Let those voices be heard. And he was surrounded by a bunch of Black Lives Matters protesters who first of all just started by shouting him down this is pretty standard but the shout down soon escalated into threats they uh, they soon started to physically assault him ended up ripping the sign out of his hands shouting things like you know nazis get out you know and and the whole point was here's a guy peacefully standing there defending their right of free speech as well as the right of every other person to speak freely And the people who ostensibly are fighting fascism with fascism, 
shout him down, threaten him, and assault him. You know, just in case he was, you know, about to engage in some kind of totalitarian behavior. And probably the most striking part of all in watching that video was uh, there was a female police officer strolling by. She's fully aware of what's going on. She walks right past as the crowd, the mob, I should say, backs him up to the wall and begins to threaten him and tries to rip away his sign and hounds him out of the public square. She doesn't do a thing. She, she deliberately looks the other way and just keeps on walking. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting you, need, you and I need to be out there, you know, cracking heads in the streets. We do not need to go out there and bring more anger or more violence into an already violent and out of control mentality. But you'd better be prepared to stand up and assert your rights, even knowing that it could cost you. Because with that right, that freedom of speech, there's also freedom of conscience. And this is the one that I fear too many people are going to give up because they don't realize it's absolutely inseparably linked to your freedom of speech. You don't have to be out there making, you know, loud, boisterous, speechifying on every street corner in order to be exercising your freedom of speech. You just need to be able and willing to speak the truth whenever it needs to be spoken. But boy, does it come at a price. Another headline, and this is, you know, this is an aberration, but it illustrates how, how bad is free speech under attack? 24-year-old mother, young mother, shot to death. This was in America. What did she do that uh, merited her being executed in the street? She said all lives matter to the wrong Black Lives Matter activist and caught a bullet for her trouble. How do you turn back a tide like that? I don't know. So if you're waiting for me to give you the answer in 20 seconds or less, I can't give you that answer. All I know is that good people have to continue to stand up, to speak up, speak the truth with love, and do not be cowed into silence. I know it's tempting to want to just hide and try to avoid it all. This is not the time to do that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.